today's scripture reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she set them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mina. 
For those of you joining us recently, as Pastor Lewis mentioned, we are in the middle of a servant series called The Mothers of Jesus, which stem from the, the first few verses of the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew introduces Jesus's genealogy. Let me read a few words, uh, a few verses from Jesus' genealogy, genealogy so you know what it's like. Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 6 reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, so on and so forth. Now, what's remarkable about this genealogy is that, sorry, that's not our way of making it more dramatic. That's the school's uh, technical system. Um, what's remarkable about Jesus' genealogy is that most genealogies of Jesus' day were patrilineal, which is a fancy word of saying they listed only the names of men. And so genealogies composed of fathers and sons, fathers and sons, fathers and sons. That was the vast majority. Now, there were some genealogies that did list women. But the women are listed for a particular purpose. You see, it was common in the Old Testament days for a man to have multiple wives. And so he would have many kids, half-brothers, born to this uh, wife, other brothers born to this wife, other brothers born to this wife. And so if in a genealogy you had multiple sons listed, they would mention whose mother they belonged to. So you could say it had a utilitarian purpose. But when you look at Jesus' genealogy, not only do you have the rare appearance of women, but they don't serve a utilitarian purpose. Matthew doesn't list multiple brothers born to one dad and needs to then designate who belongs to which mom. If you look at Jesus' genealogy, you have father and son and only one son listed. And so the reason why the women are listed is because they are significant in and of themselves. Matthew believes that these women's story highlight, help prepare, showcase the purpose and mission of Jesus Christ. Their stories in and of themselves prepare the way for Jesus. And so last week, Pastor Lewis talked about Tamar and how Tamar's story prepares the way for Jesus to accomplish justice. Next week, we're going to talk about Ruth and see how her story highlights Jesus' love for the outsider. The week following, we're going to look at the story of Bathsheba and see how her story highlights Jesus' love for the wounded and the victimized. Today, we are going to look at Rahab. Now, Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter 2. What's going on here? 
Well, the nation of Israel has just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They are finally at the cusp of entering the promised land. But standing in their way is the well-fortified, formidable city of Jericho. Joshua, ever the wise leader, sends two spies on a reconnaissance mission to survey the land, perhaps to detect any weaknesses in the city. They go out, and it was about a two-day's journey from the Jordan River. When the spies reach Jericho, they lodge at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Most likely, Rahab's home also served as a brothel. And if you think about it, it makes sense why they choose to lodge at Rahab's brothel. You see, if there's ever a place where you like to keep your identity secret, if there's a place where people don't ask too many questions about who you are, it would be a brothel. We've all seen those strip joints with blacked out windows. Why? Because confidentiality is key to their business. Patrons of such places don't want to be identified by the public. And so since a brothel thrives on confidentiality, well, confidentiality is exactly what a spy needs. Unfortunately, these spies were apparently not very good at their craft. They are discovered and detected. Some men tell the king, we have seen two men who are up to no good staying at Rahab's home. You need to arrest them at once, lest damage and destruction be brought to our city. And so the king wisely sends out some police officers to knock on Rahab's door. Rahab opens it, and they say, bring out the men who are up to no good. To our surprise, Rahab does not cooperate. She agrees, yes, there were two men here earlier today, but I have no idea who they are. But too bad, because they've already left the home. And if you want to capture them, you better leave now before it gets too dark. All the while she's saying this, she knows that there are two spies hiding on her roof. When the coast is clear, Rahab then uh, drops the men down by a rope through her window. She gives them instructions on how to avoid capture. Don't just make a beeline to your home. There are men out there looking for you. Hide in these hills over there for a few days. And by the time uh, you leave, these uh, men will have returned. Thankfully, the spies follow her instructions and their lives are saved because of Rahab. And in return for her kindness and their safe deliverance, the spies promise her that she and her family will be spared when Israel attacks Jericho. They instruct her to tie a scarlet cord outside her window and that all those hiding in her home will be safe when they go to war. Now, there's a couple questions that I need to answer when it comes to our story, questions that are often asked. The first one is an ethical question. Is it okay to lie? 
After all, Rahab clearly lies to the king. She tells the king that she doesn't know who these men were. She tells the king that they have left her home. She tells the king, you better pursue them lest it get dark. You have lie after lie. And so how are we to make sense of these lies? Were they righteous or unrighteous lies? Was God pleased with Rahab on that day? Now, there are some who argue that God was not pleased with Rahab. After all, God is a God of truth, and he makes clear in the Bible in a number of places that he hates lying. You think of the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. The book of Proverbs are filled with condemnations against those who have a lying tongue. Ananias and Sapphira are famous for being judged for lying to the apostles. Satan is known as the father of lies. And so the Bible makes it really clear that lying has no place in the kingdom of God. And so based on these scriptural uh, uh, passages, there are those who say that Rahab was ungodly here. She shouldn't have lied. But is this true? Is it wrong for you and me to leave the light on in our homes when we go on vacation in in order to deter thieves who would want to rob our place? Is it wrong for a woman who sees someone approaching from behind to get on her phone and pretend she's calling the police so that she won't get mugged? Is it wrong for the police to drive in unmarked cars? Is it wrong for the FBI to send undercover agents to infiltrate a drug lord's gang? I don't think so. When you read the Bible, you'll discover that it's not as simplistic and absolute as we think when it comes to lying. There are certain passages where the Bible suggests that lying is not only permissible, but actually righteous. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh sees the growing population of the Israelites. He feels threatened at how quickly they're multiplying and sees a day where the Israelites will outnumber the Egyptians. And so he comes with a wonderful solution. He says, I want you midwives to murder every male infant that is born. Thankfully, these midwives uh, refuse to carry out his devilish order, and they lie to Pharaoh and cover up their act of obedience. The Bible tells us that these midwives feared God. Even here in our passage, when it comes to Rahab's lies, James chapter 2, 25 says this about Rahab. Quote, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. J- uh, James praises Rahab. He sees her deception as a fruit, evidence of a true and living faith. She, he promotes Rahab as someone we ought to emulate and follow. 
As you can see, when you look at Scripture, not all lying is wrong in every circumstance. Most circumstances, yes. In no way am I giving you an excuse to to, uh, be uh, more liberal with the truth. But there are certain situations where deception is morally permissible. I like this statement from Pastor Sam Storms. He says this, a lie is an intentional falsehood that violates someone's right to know the truth. But there are instances when people forfeit their right to know the truth. If someone is going to use that truth to harm you, kill you, take advantage of you, in those situations, that person has given up their right to know the truth. Now, a second question that a lot of people ask when it comes to Joshua chapter 2 is the question of motives. Why? Why does Rahab help these spies? After all, she is a Canaanite. They are Israelites. By helping these spies, she's betraying her own people. Not only that, but she is risking her life for these spies. If somehow her plot was uncovered, if a neighbor saw these men being dropped down by a rope, if someone reported these activities to the police, she surely would have been arrested and executed for treason. And so why in the world would she help these men whom she's never met before? Well, the answer is clear. The reason why she helps these spies is not because of her love for these men as much as it was her love for their God. In verses 9 through 10, she shares about how she heard reports of what what the God of Israel had done in the past. She heard about how God divided the Red Sea. She heard about how God gave military victories to the nation of Israel. And in hearing about these reports of what the God of Israel had done, she believed, she became convinced that he is the one true living God. Her personal faith is captured in verse 11 where she says, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The word used there as Lord in all caps is the personal covenantal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. This was a name that only Israelites used. And so by using that name, what Rahab is doing is identifying herself as a fellow believer. Not only that, but she describes God as a God of the heavens above and of the earth beneath. In other words, God is God over everything. This too is significant because the Canaanites were polytheists. Their worldview was that the earth was divided into different regions and entities, each ruled by a specific God. So in this city, this God reigns. That city, that God reigns. This mountain belongs to this God. That river belongs to that God. That's how they saw life. 
But Rahab says, this is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. Everything is under the lordship of the God of Israel. I am not like my polytheistic neighbors. I am a fellow believer. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this explains why she helps the spies. So what are the takeaways then from Rahab's story? Why does Matthew list her as an ancestor of Jesus when he could have listed, as Pastor Lewis mentioned last week, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, a whole host of other women, mothers in the Old Testament? As I thought about Rahab's story, I was able to think of two reasons why she is listed. Reason number one, Rahab prepares the way for Jesus because in her we see that God is a God of far-reaching forgiveness. God is a God of far-reaching forgiveness. Of all the different Canaanites, God could have chosen to use that day. He could have chosen a kindergarten teacher, a doctor. He could have chosen a, a, a social worker, someone virtuous, someone morally upright. But of all the Canaanites in the city of Jericho, he chooses a prostitute, one of the most vile, immoral professions in the history of man. Why? In order to demonstrate, I believe, that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace, that there is no sin that God cannot forgive, no past that God cannot redeem, no act that God cannot absolve. If God can forgive Rahab, a prostitute, he can forgive anyone. Yet there's a problem, isn't there? You see, forgiveness poses somewhat of a conundrum if you learn about who God is. You see, the Bible makes very clear that our God is a God of holiness, which means he is a God that hates sin. It's to it totally opposes his holy character. Not only does the Bible, is the Bible clear about God being a holy God, but it also declares that our God is a just God. He must punish sin. And so even if God wanted to pretend we never sinned, even if God wanted to simply wipe away our sins, he can't lest he violate his own justice and holiness. He must punish sin. He cannot let sin go unpunished, the Bible says. And so how in the world can he look at Rahab and Forgive her on the spot, despite all she's done in her life. There's a clue I believe the Bible gives us. You see, the spies instruct her, hang a scarlet cord outside your window, and all those hiding in your home 
will be spared and saved. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Commentators note how the spy's instructions to tie a scarlet cord mirrors God's instruction to Israel 40 years earlier. On the night of Passover, the angel of death would go over Egypt, but God commanded the Israelites, you need to shed the blood of a lamb and put that blood over the doorposts, and any home that has that blood will be passed over from judgment, rescued from judgment. You see, the reason why the Israelites are spared is because their sins were symbolically paid for through the suffering and death of that lamb. Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. He is the one who came, who was slain for our sins. So that on the cross, God's justice would not be minimized or overlooked, but satisfied. Jesus would bear our sin so that the penalty and price for our sins would not be paid by us, but be paid by him. So that God's holy wrath would be appeased. At the same time, on the cross, God's love would also be fully satisfied. For on the cross, it's not us that is punished, but Jesus on our behalf. So that instead of experiencing the just penalty for our sins, instead we experience the just reward of Christ's obedience. Dear friends, I don't know everything about you. I don't know what you've done in your life, but I'm pretty sure for all of us here, there are things we've done in our lives that are hard for us to forget. Things we've done we wish we could undo. Words we've said we wish we could unsay. A lot of us may struggle with guilt and shame from those things that were committed Regardless of what you've done, what secrets you carry, whether you were promiscuous like Rahab was, whether you had an affair or an abortion, whether you were arrested and sent to prison, whether you wounded a child because of your anger, God can forgive you. God can forgive you and wash you clean and make you white as snow. Jesus' blood is that powerful. And Rahab's story is meant as God's way to convince you that no one and no sin is beyond the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. Reason number two. I believe Rahab is listed in Jesus' genealogy because I believe her story showcases the full range of God's love, the full range of God's love. One thing that 
uh, about me that I like to do is I'm a sucker for singing competitions. And so whether it's American Idol, The Voice, or America's Got Talent, uh, I love to hear people sing beautifully. And after watching these shows for many years, I've picked up on what type of audition these singers uh, need to have, what type of songs they need to use. They need to use songs that illustrate their full range. They need to use songs that are dynamic, that showcase their ability to sing beautifully, not only here, but also a lower register and especially at the upper register. If you sing a song that is too safe, too monotone, too at one key, you're not going to advance. You need to showcase your range. I believe Rahab is listed because God wants to showcase his range when it comes to his love. You see, as glorious as it is for Rahab to be forgiven, and believe me, to be forgiven of all our sins is a glorious reality, one worth singing and worshiping God for eternity. As glorious as it was to have Rahab's record wiped clean and justified before God, God was only beginning with her. His work had only begun. I want you to imagine what life must have been like for Rahab after she left Jericho and joined the community of faith of Israel. What do you think her story looked like afterwards? As a former prostitute, as a former Canaanite, I think a lot of us would probably guess, yeah, I think the Israelites would welcome Rahab, But most likely, she probably lived on the fringe of the covenant community. After all, look at all she used to be and all she used to do. I think if the same thing happened to our church, we'd understand. What if there was a former prostitute, a former porn star, who came to our church and says, I need Jesus? How would we receive her? I'm hoping that here at New Life, we would extend to her the warm welcome of Jesus Christ, who is a friend of sinners. We would welcome her and call her sister. But how would you feel if she became more and more plugged in and she was nominated for deaconess? How would you feel if she read scripture from the stage? If she was your life group leader, your discipleship leader, what then? I think if we're honest, we'd feel a little bit leery and uncomfortable. But that's not what happens to Rahab. With Rahab, God doesn't just accept her or tolerate her presence in Israel. He exalts her and celebrates her. 
Matthew tells us that she married Salmon. Who is Salmon? He is a prince of the tribe of Judah. He was one of the royal families, most recognized families in all of Israel. Rahab doesn't simply remain a a, a single woman outcasted on the uh, margins of society. No, she becomes incorporated, embraced by Israel's elite. What is more, in Hebrews 11, you have what is known as the hall of faith. The Bible's equivalent to the hall of fame where only select saints... Select characters of the Old Testament are listed for their faith. And you guessed it, Rahab is listed. In 1131, Hebrews uh, declares, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And of course, of all the accolades the Bible gives of Rahab, nothing compares to the fact that she is a grandmother of Jesus, an ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. Forgiving Rahab, accepting Rahab was just the beginning of what God would do in her life. God would proceed to exalt her, lavish his love upon her, celebrate her. He uses Rahab as an example to show us the full range of what it means to be loved by God. That he doesn't simply accept us. He celebrates us and exalts us and makes us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And I mention this because I've discovered that when I ask people to share their faith journeys and share with me what are the highlights of what God has done in your life, I've discovered that for a lot of people, they tend to talk about their conversion experience. And I don't mean to minimize our conversion experience. Indeed, how amazing it is to have the scales fall off, to see our desperate need for a Savior, and see how Jesus is that beautiful Savior. It's amazing to know that your sins have been forgiven. But brothers and sisters, it's not supposed to be all downhill from there. As if that is the apex of what it means to be a child of God. That's only the beginning. God saved you because he has a plan for you, a purpose for you. There is so much more of his love he wants you to explore. There is so much of his kingdom he wants you to display. There are co-workers in your life he wants to bless through you. There are relatives in your life he wants to save through you. There are injustices in this world he wants to correct through you. He's only beginning, and he invites us every day to step into his will and live as someone who says, Lord, let your will be done, not my will. And yet for many of us, we act as if God's work is done 
when we first came to faith, and we just wait until he comes again. That is not true. Dear friends, this is the story of Rahab. This is how she prepares us for the coming of Jesus. Her story highlights the far reach of God's forgiveness. Her story highlights the full range of God's grace. Today, let's turn to him and receive his grace and ask him to use us for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Rahab's story. And in so many ways, Lord, Rahab embodies uh, the heartbeat of the gospel, that you are a God who is drawn, Lord, to those who are weighed down by sin. And yet, O Lord, you are a God that doesn't simply forgive sinners, but sanctifies and glorifies and uses sinners for your glory. We pray, O Lord, uh, that we would be able to walk in faith uh, the path you've laid out for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.